Hi everyone, this is Olga Mack. It's good to see everyone. Today we have a very interesting and important conversation. Now for years people have been asking whether or not lawyers should start learning to code. Um, I have given that answer a number of times, but today I want to talk to somebody who has thought about it deeply for many years, my very good friend, Ryan. Yeah, hello, uh, Ryan Finn. Uh, I'm an attorney, I'm, I'm currently uh, at the Boeing company, um, kind of in what's referred to as our contra contract risk management discipline. So kind of a, a step in between the business and the law practice. We uh, have moved towards a lot of kind of people process tech implementations and governance and, and process. So always trying to optimize uh, and, and connect contracting to, to business objectives. So it's something in between qualitative and quantitative. And, and, and lately, it's a lot of software and tools sort of implementation. We share a passion for contracts um, and tech. Actually, before Boeing and, and this, uh, this role on the intersection <laughs> of law, technology and business, what were you doing before? Yeah, I I've, I've bounced around various kind of operations, legal compliance roles. I've, I've sort of always been trying to scratch this itch of how to solve problems in a systematic way. Uh, and the practice of law, as we all know, has not always focused on on tech and, and tools and data and systems. It's sort of been a recreate the wheel uh, each time. And so trying to get more closer and closer to the business side of things and, and how, do you, how do you tackle things from sort of a systematic approach. And so that's kind of now melted a little bit into um you know, more of a, a pure legal practice, but I'm always sort of bouncing around operations uh, capacities to sort of figure out how, how do we solve problems at scale. And and so um, various, I was at a few large banks, um, a law firm, you know, all over the place trying to trying to figure out how, to, how do you solve things from a business perspective, not necessarily the way legal has sort of viewed problems and solutions in the past. And technology plays a role in this um in this thinking around uh, systematically solving um, challenges in law, specifically contra contracts, right? Right, Ryan? Yeah, well, you know, that's certainly, I mean, companies are moving towards this digitization effort now and we got to digitize. Um, and contracts, I think, offer a really nice use case of the value add towards digitization. I, I love contracts, I always have. Uh, the idea of deal making and and figuring out data points, you know, risk versus reward analysis, all that boils down to to probability and and, and data in, in large part. So um, I love contracts and you know connecting contracts to that digitization effort through through technology and, and obviously legal tech is sort of trendy hashtag now. But everyone's scrambling for a CLM system. Everyone's looking how to how to manage that process and, and digitize. So it's it is a challenge, and you see companies scrambling with putting new stuff on top of legacy systems and, and how to change manage and what's the best tech stack to get there. And so there, there is not necessarily one answer, but I love that, you know, the contract use case at scale, particularly in large companies trying to figure out how to, how to move that through efficiently. As much as I would like to geek out with you on contracts, um, I want to take this conversation to lawyers and coding. So let's go there because we will have a more in-depth conversation about contracting next week. Well, let's talk about your technical background. Do you have a technical background? No, I do not. Um, you know, I did the econ poli side double major, sort of a, you know, a legal, common legal background, I think, for a lot of lawyers trying to get into to the legal curriculum. And then so I, you know, I don't have a technical background. My undergrad was not technical, I think. The more and more I started to see contracts um, and organizational sort of change management, 
happen through the prism of data and systems, I started to realize system bad systems are the problem and good systems or software is the solution. Um, everything gets solved in large part by better processes, but all that kind of encapsulated within within tools, within software. So um, a lot of my contracts that I've negotiated have been software contracts. So I, I, I sort of got into a lot of uh, product architecture and functionality use cases, and then slowly but surely realized, you know, this is kind of the answer to everything if, if it's done right. So I do not have a technical background, but I've, I've sort of just thrown myself into trying to figure out how to use tools to solve problems. And so it's a slow process, but it's, it's fun. And I think you, um, you know, you just learn, learn every day, something new. It's such an iterative process. Kind of had this um, viewpoint that, you know, you learn it all and then you, and then you use it. But at the end of the day, you're just, you know, every day you're, you're kind of learning a new tool or a new, a new way of looking at a problem. So it evolves so quickly. So it's a challenge and an opportunity. Policy icon background is so common that we actually share it. Um, I, mm -hmm. <laughs> I was, <laughs> so it, that's my technical background as well. So uh, it's as technical as it gets. It, it's very interesting. You know, uh, people ask me that question all the time, uh, whether I have a technical background like yourself, I usually say no because of, you know, kind of education. But you know, at this point, I've been practicing law for 15 years, and I've you know I've you know looked at architecture, took things apart, um, you know, done some coding and uh, created data maps. You know, it seems to me it's fair just to say that once you do it for a little while and you know comfortable um, coding and and, uh, and 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 taking things apart, would that qualify as a I don't know? maybe technical expertise to some extent, or at least comfort? Well, and, you know, technical expertise is such a broad term, you know, and you start to realize as you, as you move into this uh, landscape that, you know, you could be a specialist in one thing and, and, and not have a whole lot of knowledge in something else. So front end, back end, web development. I mean, there's so many, there's so many learning curves and expertise. I think you kind of have to stick within something of a small area and, and, and try to just learn how to build using the tools kind of within that discipline. Um, and so for me, you know, I, I guess the, the more I dive in and try to build with databases and workflows, you know, teaching myself Python and, and SQL. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of no-code tools, which is kind of, you know, a passion of mine. And we'll touch on that next week. But, um, you know, you just learn how to build on and you're given use case and within the landscape that you're sort of, you know, pushing towards and, and you're just not going to be an expert in everything and that's okay. Well, no technical, legitimate technical person I've met is an expert in everything. That doesn't True. make them any more technical. And I think the point um, we are seem to be converging is that technical expertise is not something you're born with or even necessarily acquire in school. That's something you can acquire on a job. Um, and, uh, you know, there's sort of shades of being technical. Uh, before you sort of leap into answer of saying no, um, mm -hmm. I'm not a technical person. There's sort of shades of uh, explaining what that expertise is and um, and and move on, the, on, on that trajectory to do your job. Yeah, I think you know the the further I've delved into sort of trying to build, um, the more I have conversations with folks and and they seem to think, oh, you you know you're you're a technical guy, and I I, I sometimes take a step back and think, well, that's sort of happened just through iteration and, and just exploration. So, you know, a, a few years ago, the things that I'm building now would have seemed completely foreign. So, you know, and, and there's just so many resources now online, you really can teach yourself something. And again, the no code route is such sort of uh, a shortcut to get there, but you're realizing that, you know, you're building workflows and it's a lot of it just if then processes. So 
I always kind of love logic in courses in college. And I think you can create a lot with, with the simple understanding of if then, um, and that's how a lot of software is built kind of on the back end. So I guess I become more technical than I certainly have historically, but it, it's just been an, a fascination and an exploration trying to build things to solve problems that I see sort of on a daily basis. Yeah, just like law is a learned skill, building technical is a learned skill. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and it's a work in progress. So um, I, I do think that it's worth pursuing if, you, if you're interested on that path. You mentioned contracts as code. Tell me more about that. When I talk of contracts as code too, I think there's, there's sort of a process and a substance aspect to that. And I think probably touch more on the substance in this call, but you know, from a process standpoint, you realize so much of what lawyers do is, is kind of recreate their wheel. And they, particularly in environments where you have a high volume of contracts and you're constantly trying to make decisions about what can or can't we accept? Um, how do we move it through the process, the funnel? How do we engage stakeholders? And, and how do we you know, route for, uh, for approval governance? All these things that are kind of process flows, you realize you start to kind of map that out in sort of a governance route, you start to look like an algorithm um, and a decision tree. And so I think contracts as code for me started with how do I leverage what I know how to do well across the spectrum of a lot of users, um, you know, various procurement agents or buyers or, or folks within the ecosystem that are engaging in contracts. And so that's kind of more of a process flow. And that's kind of what CLM tools help to sort of facilitate. But you know, started to realize all those things that we do as we as we decide on what's acceptable or not look a lot like algorithms. Um, and how do we turn the contract process into something more co-driven, structured, and systematic? And so that kind of unlocked it for me there, and particularly exploring different CLM tools and seeing what they, which ones kind of focus um, and, and have strengths and weaknesses. But then you quickly also realize the substantive part of it, and this I think goes you know kind of the core of today's discussion is you hear contracts as code a lot, but you quickly realize that contracts, you know, are, are writing on a piece of paper um, and don't want to do a whole lot of good outside of that. I mean, they don't, you know, the self-executing nature, sort of the, the debt alive, if you will, nature of contracts, whereby it's not just um, blank, empty writing on a paper that can be thrown into the ocean and it doesn't do a whole lot of good. But how do you, how do you tr plug it into the internet? How do you make it a, a live document? And I think that goes through a lot of structured data, but that coding, you start to realize, you know, language is operative language, has meaning, um, but does that meaning kind of leap off the page and become self-executing? Does it feed ERP systems? Um, does that data really have have value outside of you know an English language on on, on a on a flat piece of document? So that contract as a code stuff as both a process and a substance of uh, role is, is is fascinating. I think that's what we're moving now. Where we're getting to that age of contracts not just being documents in a drawer, um, but live code that's both self-executing and and that data is able to transfer to and from systems to be able to really allow enterprises to make risk versus reward decisions on a on a dynamic basis. So um, I'm in love with both sides of that, the process and the substantive end goal. On the one hand, substance, uh, which is, you know, language on a piece of paper. On the other hand, workflows, which is, yep. you know, code. How do you marry the two? Well, I think they they inherently become married when when you realize that every part of the process is a piece of data. Um, you know, we don't really have you know, law is certainly always going to be a field with a lot of pro proprietary restrictions and considerations. It's but out of all other, you know, law is consistently on the back burner. I think in its use of big data, and that that's you know something that gets recorded and and referred to often. But both process and substance, you know, these are pieces of data that we can track. 
Um, and we should be tracking every aspect, kind of looking under the hood of what happens during our negotiation process. And, you know, cycle times is the lowest hanging fruit example of that. But, you know, each part of that contract is something that affects risk versus reward. And the more alive it is, the more dynamic and structured it becomes, the more systems can feed into that contract to determine, you know, what are what are best decision? Um, how do we make risk versus reward decisions not using sort of best guesses or you know, anecdotal or, um, you know, individual choices or experience or knowledge, but how do we connect that to the to the broader ecosystem of data so that the whole process is alive and, and tells us about efficiencies and then also how the end result contract feeds into systems and, and draws from systems through APIs to make contracting decisions. So thinking about it in data, I think is the way to marry both of those two items because it's you know kind of the practicality of it. If you wanted to think about 5, 10, 20, I don't know, how far, how far ahead do you want to think about contracts? Uh, we, can, uh, we can take uh, manual lenses. Uh, what is the future of contracts? Well, I, th I do believe that, you know, the whole robots replacing lawyers um, theme. And I think various articles have been published on that lately with, with different degrees of pushback. But I, I do think robots are coming um, to replace a lot of lawyers and certainly repurpose lawyers. Part of that, though, is just because our industry and ecosystem is built on such a labor intensive model. You know, we rely on individual lawyers to, to practice law and use their best guesses, their individual decision trees, if you will, of what, what sh you know, should a client do. And then, you know, maybe they turn to what, you know, Westlaw or Lexis or whatever research tools they use. But fundamentally, it's sort of this one on one model. And then you hear various, you know, documentations talking about a one to many. But I do think software and robots, if you will, are coming to kind of be the intermediary between client and the practice of law. And I think it's a beautiful future, although it has winners and losers. Clients are gonna be the winners in this. I think certainly the ability to scale the practice of law allows for incredibly cheaper um, services, which is awesome. I mean, we, we always talk and hear about this, you know, access to justice problem we have, but the more we scale the practice of law through software, the cheaper it becomes. Um, and then also the quality of services go up. I mean, I, I think, you know, I always used to have this epiphany even in practicing law when someone would come to me and say, hey, you know, what should we do here? And there's this mindset of like, I know what to do. But in reality, you know, what am I using to make those judgment calls? How, why am I not, you know, I, I can be approved upon, I think, and if you look at what lawyers ultimately do, they use their own internal mental models and decision trees to say, if this, then that. Well, robots are really good at that. And robots are also really good at researching information Um and so I just think what lawyers do and a lot of knowledge workers is really what I think a lot of computers and robots and software ultimately can improve upon. So I think we're looking at a very, you know, tech driven practice along the future that has winners and looters, but I think clients are the winners there. And I think fundamentally, whether you call it productization, whether you call it workflow driven, but well, we're going to hook up individual lawyers and, and masses of lawyers knowledge to uh, decision tree algorithms, hook that up to the you know, to the internet for, for looking at, you know, and research functionality. I think that that drives a lot of um, incredible legal service delivery models in the future. So I think it's very much code driven. Before we talk about winners and losers, and before we even talk possible um, reductions, um, let's talk about skills. I am a lawyer. I'm, I'm a law student graduating from, from law school. I am a legal professional who may or may not have a law degree who wants to thrive in this field. I am an attorney 
who in the mid and or beginning of my career who wants to prepare myself for the future. I'm just trying to illustrate all the ways, all the times in there in our lives where we would like to make pivots and, and make sure we have a bright future, which could be at any time, really. What do I do? What skills do I acquire? Yeah, you hear a lot of, you know, lawyers should code. Um, and I don't, you know, from experience, the learning curve is steep and you're only, you, it's very difficult, I think, to become proficient enough to really build on your own. But from a, from a skill standpoint, it really is a, a collaborative effort. And you hear all the time about cross-disciplinary approaches, but I think that is the future. If we're talking about turning law to something more software-based pro product, if you will, that clients interact with, lawyers can get to the forefront of this future by being able to collaborate with folks that build. And this is certainly apparent in all other industries. So it's, it's not like we're inventing from scratch here, but the idea is maybe you won't be a project manager, maybe you won't be a product developer, maybe you're not gonna be a coder, but you're gonna to have to learn how to collaborate with those teams and learn that the future of law is a finished product that clients interact with or that lawyers kind of work with to, to scale their own delivery. Um, and so I think those disciplines, you, you, know, you don't have to be, again, a, a certified project manager, manager, but I think learning how other disciplines work across that collaboration of cross-disciplinary kind of focuses. So I think that's something you can learn fairly quickly. Like how do, how do developers build, right? How do you, what does agile mean? Like, how do you go from, you know, from product to, to user testing, all those things that kind of software developers do in other fields. So I think learning those disciplines and you see a lot of that propping up now, um, you're just gonna have to learn how to collaborate and be a part of teams that that build things through an iterative, iterative process. And that, that's really doable. It's not the first time where lawyers have to do technical work. You know, my my background is patent litigation. Um, my, old, my other background is privacy and security. In both of these scenarios, um, you know, I had to get on top of some really technical products <laughs> and, uh, and data processes and, uh, and collaborate with uh, various uh, experts uh, who've been doing this for decades. Um, you know, um, you don't have to learn to code necessarily to be conversational. Just like, you know, when I, um, you know, go to Italy, uh, I can be conversational. I'm definitely, my, my proficiency in Italian is not enough for me to have a job there probably or, or go to school. Um, that doesn't mean that I can't learn 200 words and phrases to have a good time in Rome. Um, and and uh, we as lawyers, if you talk to any privacy, security, or IP lawyer, um, have been able to, to, to gain enough proficiencies to do our job. And in, in the legal field where that is um, you know, uh, required to give good legal advice, um, we, we certainly have seen many examples of lawyers getting, getting proficient and um, being able to speak the language of business. Um, and it may mean that some of us may need to code a little more than others, uh, but it doesn't mean that all of us will need to start coding and certainly become developers. I think that's what, 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 where are you going with this, Ryan, right? Yeah, I mean, the idea that lawyers are going to turn into coders is, is just not practical. And I think, um, yeah, the learning curve is steep, and, but you don't necessarily need to. I do think, though, and this is a topic that gets sensitive for lawyers, but you know, lawyers have had a monopoly on, on the practice of law for a long time. And we're starting to see now with, you know, these sandbox environments, Arizona, particularly where I'm at, where this, you know, reduction or removal entirely of rule 5.4 and various sort of ethical constraints of, of, um, you know, the unethical practice of law, I think 
uh, you know, jurisdictions and regulatory um, relaxation of, of non-lawyer um, equity, if you will, you're seeing, you know, a movement towards that and it's slow right now, but I think lawyers are no longer going to be the primary and sole monopoly of legal service deliveries. And I think companies that utilize lawyers and lawyers that can collaborate within kind of the productization of what lawyers typically did, that's, that's how you're going to get to the front of the line is, is to be a part of cross-functional multidisciplinary teams that solve legal problems through data analysis, uh, through systems, through tools. So it's really just, and, and again, all to the benefit of the client. And unfortunately though, um, there's going to be some winners and losers within the legal ecosystem as well. So it, there, there's going to be, the scaling allows for, I think, a smaller pool of, of providers, unfortunately. You know, look, we've seen erosion uh, on the sort of knowledge monopoly for a while. You know, I, I in my 15-year practice, you know, with the kind of rise of internet, have gone from being the sole owner of the knowledge to, you know, most of my clients know how to Google. Many of them come to me with basic understanding of a black letter law um, that, you know, that, you know, did not necessarily, uh, in fact, I would say that made my job much easier um, and actually created many more opportunities. And that is actually consistent. When you talk to doctors, um, they've had similar situations where up until recent time, until internet, most uh, patients would go to the office, know nothing about their what they have. Now they can self-diagnose. They are very educated about the trials and all kinds of things. And then they can have much more streamlined, useful mm -hmm. conversations. Um, and, and, and then doctors are still in business and we're still in business. So it's not clear, you know, whether it's net-net laws. There is, of course, this additional... Um, kind of legal structure that creates, you know, a monopoly of, of legal practice that is slowly deteriorating. That may take a while, but, you know, the expertise is now much more democratic. And that, that has been a trend for quite a long time. And that trend is, is, is very hard to stop. Um, you've been talking, you evolved a few times. So I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this conversation around, um, how, you know, lawyers, whether there will be um, with uh, various um, technological advances and various um, um, innovations, do you think there will be a smaller need for lawyers? Well, I do. I mean, the historical nature of the legal practice has been an extremely human labor dominant delivery model. Um, and that's changing now and you're seeing firms embrace, you know, how do we include tech? How, how do we reduce the amount of human labor involved in, in our deliverable? Um, except obviously that, that billable hour conversation that has been had many times, but the incentive has not typically been to be more efficient. It's been to, you know, if we get paid by the hour, then we should bill as many hours as we can, relatively speaking. So I do think that incentive large is a large part of what's blocked sort of an efficiency movement within the legal practice. Um, you know, if you're trying to sell something to a law firm that allows what they to do in, in 10 hours now to one, well, where do the rest of those nine hours come from? So the client would benefit certainly, but law firms are not built up from an incentive structure. And I think, you, you know, when you follow the incentives, you see, you know, that time build is, is what's going to drive a lot of decision-making, unfortunately. But if we move to a model where we have something, you know, instead of the 90 to 10 ratio, and I'm pulling that number out of my, my head, but human layer to tech in terms of the, you know, the value chain of, of the delivery model. Um, and you start to flip it 50, 50. Well, 
an industry that was built on such a large human labor intensive delivery mechanism. Now, you know, what do you do with all those hours? So I think in, in most of the time you'll hear something, the effect of, well, technology and automation, which I'm a huge fan of, allow you to kind of move out of manual menial tasks and up and up the food chain to, to more higher value add tasks, which is certainly true. But because our industry has been built historically on a large number and volume of, of manual menial tasks and those go away, well then, you know, what do we feed lawyers in terms of, in terms of labor? So I do think there's a huge reduction coming or at least a, a really big repurposing. Um, and we're all still familiar with those stories, right? Of, you know, I'm, I'm paying this expensive law firm and, and they have associates, you know, track changing on, on NDAs, you know, for X $500 an hour, you know, what happens when all that goes and gets scaled through technology? Well, there's just aren't enough hours to go around. So I do think firms are either going to be able to repurpose lawyers, which is a change management skill that they haven't necessarily shown historically. Um, so I do think lawyers are going to get repurposed and, and largely there's going to be a less of a demand for them big time. So that it's a little bit cynical, but I absolutely think that's the case based upon the, you know, the economics of the industry historically. You know, um, it's, I guess I will insert some drama. I will disagree a little. I, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I do think that we'll, we will need to acquire skills. Um, and I think our jobs will change and they will change in our lifetime. And in fact, in the foreseeable lifetime, and they've been changing um, for, for the last few decades. Um, do I do I anticipate a, a dramatic reduction of lawyers? No, I do imagine lawyers uh, being repurposed and uh, and and uh, and swim across lanes of departments and disciplines. Uh, I imagine them giving legal advice differently. There will still be need for one-on-one -on -one in some cases and one-to-many uh, advice delivery models. Um, and then, you know, most importantly. You know, like I, I, you know, I hear your point about hours, and I've lived that dream at a big law, and I can tell you that 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 dream is not as exciting as it sounds. Um, and but not all of us are billing hours. I, I mean, in fact, for the last decade, I haven't billed a single hour of my service. Um, and so, and and the many of us practicing in house government, uh, various nonprofits, other places, where that that that, that hour means nothing. Um, and, and if anything, we have seen the growth of, of departments uh, where the, the hour means absolutely nothing. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it, the law firms will definitely have to change their models, uh, but they're, they're not everyone is at a law firm and certainly not increasingly many law firms are not doing it by the hour. So I think there will be changes. I'm actually not convinced that there will be fewer lawyers and then there will be a need for fewer lawyers. Um, the uh, the very uh, you know uh, analogy that I tend to give that is maybe not perfect is that look emails uh, have definitely changed communications they automated them they made it much easier they democratized them have they actually decreased communication no I cannot stay on top of my, of my inbox they just made my communications more efficient and streamlined but they certainly have not reduced them. I, I do think that the future of lawyers will be something along of, of emails. Yes, it will be more streamlined. Yes, it will, people will have a better relationship with law. Uh, yes, it will be more automated. Will there be a smaller need for good legal advice? Not convinced of that. Uh, in fact, I, I think if anything, um, the, the, the need for a fantastic, competent lawyer who's, who's not just equipped in black letter law, but you know, various other skills, including, you know, knowing how to build scalable systems, I think that will be uh, a very 
important need that I think that will proliferate. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of lawyers, I guess, you know. Um, and so part of my answer is just the volume of, of maybe a blo slightly bloated labor force, but we're still underserved. Uh, you know, all these stats always flow around of, um, you know, an underserved population from legal needs. So if nothing else, then maybe the scalability and, uh, you know, through automation or really just through systems approach to practicing law and delivering legal services can help it get um, more so to the masses. So the need is still there, even with a bloated labor force. So that's exciting. Yeah. I, I think it is. Uh, it, it, it's, it's really exciting. You, you, you talked a little bit about winners and losers. Curious, um, where do you think the you know the winning camps are and the losing camps are, so that you know the listeners can align themselves better for the future? Well, the winners I think are going to be those firms that figure out how to scale. Um, and the, you know the beauty of scale too is, in, although the billable hour is a mechanism that sort of incentivizes inefficiency, and that's been talked about a lot. You know, if you can scale, particularly coupled with sort of alternative fee arrangements, there's a market penetration sort of strategy thereby where you can undercut competitors and and deliver you know better, faster, cheaper services. So obviously, the firms that figure out how to get better, chap, better, faster, and cheaper, I think, which technology allows it on all fronts. Um, those are going to be the winners. I mean, you know, clients are going to want to go towards what's some, you know, is cheaper and better. So I think firms that figure that out are going to be winners and, and firms that kind of remain obstinate of this is the way it's always been done are just going to lose out in business. Um, and particularly as we see these, you know, relaxation of rule 5.4 restrictions, but you know, whether it's the big four or various, you know, VC funded companies that are figuring out how to scale legal services, those are going to be winners and the firms that aren't able to adapt. And, you know, you see it all the time. I mean, in every other industry and it's always sort of, you know, member blockbuster, you know, remember, and you fill in the blank that, you know, there's the industry, all industries change so frequently and there's a turnover of service providers that figure how to be user centric, that has scale through technology and that don't. And in every industry that, you know, the firms and companies that don't figure that out become, you know, dinosaur dinosaurs of bygone era. So that, you know, that hasn't affected law maybe as much as other industries, but, the, the the infusion of tech-driven practices now, I think, will expedite that process. You know, and we're going to come to a day when we look back, you know, however many years it takes to say, remember when we had, you know, all these law firms and remember the ones that dominated? And now it's, you know, a company now that we don't even know of yet that that is, you know, owns huge par portions of the market through scaled services. So, yeah, there's going to be firms that figure that out and that, and that kind of win the day in the marketplace. Ryan, we're coming to the end. Uh, thank you for sharing your uh, your views um, uh, about the future of contracts and the future of law and about uh, the uh, skills that uh, we as lawyers need to learn, specifically technical coding skills and whether uh, we should all start learning them. Um, give us a parting words uh, to, to our viewers and listeners who join us today um, uh, about you know, either the future of law and contracts or the, how they can prepare themselves better uh, for that uh, unavoidable future. Yeah, I think you know, a lot of lawyers talk about this and, and feel scared, feel like they're really ill-equipped to win in this future. And, and probably that causes a lot of hesitation for this, you know, future to come at all. I mean, there's probably this sense of, well, how do I participate in something, um, a new way of delivery, using skills and knowledge that I simply don't have. I went to law school to practice law and now you're telling me I should have got a computer science, you know, undergrad. And that's not necessarily the case. There are a lot of new resources and tools popping up um, 
to kind of give practical advice. Again, it's not necessarily going teaching yourself coding. That's just not practical. But I think the more you explore tools, and again, there's so so many services um, out there now, the more you kind of explore, you know, how to build simple workflows or simple processes, how to connect and integrate tools and platforms. And it's probably something you do all the time. I mean, as simple as, you know, if you if you use Calendly or, um, you know, and, and what plugins or integrations do you use to kind of allow data to flow across different tools and resources that you use? And that iterative process of just integrating tools is, is a large part of what it looks like. So um, I, I do have a service starting up pretty shortly here called lawtechdata.com. And I think the idea is fundamentally to allow lawyers to feel confident about building tech-driven workflows that don't amount necessarily to you know, creating software from scratch. That's not what's needed. It's about just the 1% principle of get a little better, get a little faster, be a little bit more data-driven every day. Um, and especially in this no code environment, there's a path to get there. So it's exciting, but it does require an iter iterative and explorative sort of um, process. And I think it can be fun. Thank you, Ryan. The 1% better. I love that. I love that standard. That That's a great motto to live by. Thank you for joining and, and, and sharing your vision of the future and sharing um, uh, your recommendations on how to, uh, to prepare for it. Thank you everyone for joining as well. Um, you know, uh, we can all learn and experiment and as ryan said get one percent better every day um what i know for sure is that technology is an acquired skill um it is one of those things uh, when you get in and you start seeing incremental successes uh you s become encouraged to continue and actually find a way to have fun i've certainly had a lot of fun with technology for the last 15 years uh, it's been an amazing journey, uh, and I have never looked back on days when I uh, have not experimented and had fun with it. So the 1% uh, rule that Ryan recommended, I, I really very much support and hope you practice. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining. i see you next time. Have a great day, and uh, enjoy this, this beautiful summer day wherever you are. Thank you, everyone. Bye.